My name is Mary Conquest. I'm your host for Safety Labs by Slice, the podcast where we explore the human side of safety to support safety professionals. We move past regulations and reportables to talk about the core skills of safety leadership, empathy, influence, trust, rapport, in other words, the soft skills that help you do the hard stuff. Hi there, welcome to Safety Labs by Slice. As you know, safety professionals can't be everywhere all the time. They rely on employee information to know when equipment needs repair, what processes aren't working, or how they can improve safety. To get that information, it's common to tell workers to speak up or stop work. This request makes sense, but it doesn't always work. Our guest today is interested in why employees often don't speak up and how to overcome that challenge. Lauren Mooney is a former emergency department nurse and hospital administrator who spent seven years studying high-reliability organizing to better understand the challenges she saw in patient safety. While her roots are in healthcare, she's committed to helping industries learn from each other. Lauren founded Speaking In to provide a model and method to help organizations overcome the challenges of employees who don't speak up and leaders who maybe don't listen. Her work around psychological safety and leadership development opens a conversation about what's behind the speaking up message. By using her expertise to translate modern safety concepts into straightforward language and images, Lauren makes learning safety enjoyable and actionable. The goal of her speaking in work is to unlock what individuals and organizations need to thrive. And Lauren joins us from Pomfret, Connecticut. Welcome. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Yeah. So, okay. I love a good interdisciplinary story. So <laughs> I'd like to start. Can you give us an, an overview of how nursing and hospital admin led you to the world of safety and kind of what you think patient care concepts can teach safety professionals? Yes, I will. I always say when it comes to complexity at work, we have a winner and that is healthcare. Not only do we have a winner in complexity, what comes right along with that is the uncertainty. So I spent a year with cardiac patients and then just felt really drawn to the emergency room where you didn't know from a minute to minute what was going to happen next. And everyone um, who was there, it was an unexpected event that brought them there. So I think that just kindled my love of uh, learning to navigate uncertain and unexpected events. Later, I became a hospital supervisor. So now I had more of a bird's eye view. And I started to see um, it was a small system, which actually worked in our sometimes against us, but mostly in our favor, because we had so much trust on our with our very small staff. So um, as we served 11 rural towns, it was amazing to see what could actually happen on any given night and how versatile we had to be as crazy, crazy stuff was unfolding. I think my record for helicopters of patients out one night was six. And we had everything from in our town from a, a python attacking someone to, <laughs> yeah, you name it. So I thought it was going to be boring. It was far from it. Later, when you're the family nurse, everyone calls you if somebody's having an issue. So besides my daughter um, being misdiagnosed for seven years, my brother-in-law became very sick on Long Island and I went down there and spent a month in the ICU. Now at this point I had been out of healthcare for a while, homeschooling and taking a break after three kids, but I saw a culture that had so much fear 
around uncertainty and I saw uh, fear of speaking. And I said, you know, I want to get back into this. This is too important to let go. And I've been hooked ever since. I think you'd be constantly working with risk and mitigating risk and trying to figure out, I mean, I think your best training might have been uh, improv theater or something where you just have to roll with it, hey? You do. And the other piece that I really see that aligns with modern safety science is the whole safety too, you know, and what we imagine or prescribe work as and what you actually have to do and how many times I had to break a rule to do the right thing and how many times I had conflicting goals. But I think the reason I'm so optimistic and the reason I keep pushing is because I worked with great leadership who really actually trusted us and gave us the freedom to figure out what needed to be done and then back us up. So I think having seen good, I want to help it become more, you know, in more places, more good, more good experiences. Yeah. Once you've seen it, you know, it can happen. (laughs) So let's start with the standard speak up message. How does that typically play out? And I, I realize there's no typical organization, but how do you see it playing out in organizations? Honestly, it's the craziest thing. I was saying to someone today, how I see it playing out is I think that the speak up strategy is the winner when it comes to failing strategy in a workplace. My analogy is if you were a factory and you had a gate and your workers had a card and I came to visit your business and I noticed that, you know, lots of people weren't getting through the gate and you said, well, you know, it only works 30 or 40% of the time, but we just keep it. And I'd say, why would you keep such a gate? You're missing out on your best, what you need. And, and so uh, speaking up fails everyone miserably. Everyone knows this. <laughs> it is the elephant in the room. Um, but I also think there hasn't been another strategy out there. So that's why I'm excited to present you know, a new, new model. And I think it plays out, uh, as you asked, not just in this lack of safety, but in uh, really, really um, creating a poor employee experience. It also obviously keeps us from team performance, um, improvement, and innovation. So it's just bad for business all around and bad for people. It's nobody's fault. As I said, there wasn't any other one, but um, it's time to move on, I believe. Yeah, I mean, I think all these things come in with good intentions, but it doesn't mean that, that they're the best system to continue with. So in your work, you've listed some specific reasons about why speaking up doesn't work. And if it's okay, I'd like to go through them and get you to elaborate a little bit uh, on each of these. Absolutely. Yeah. So the first one is faulty assumptions. What faulty assumptions are behind that or behind speaking up? So the speaking up is really founded on the assumption that, well, if we tell people to speak up, they will. That's very basic. But also that we've sort of planned your work it's going to go fine. And you're going to just speak up if there's a problem. So it's this very intermittent, hey, we need to address something now versus a very needing a very continual flow of information because new uh, scenarios are constantly emerging. And it's under the faulty assumptions. I also, I really think that's, it basically isn't aligning with human nature. It's just so under that, section where I said, well, um, we assume it's going to work. There's this glaring opposition to the fact that humans need to know that they're not going to be harmed when they speak up. So it doesn't help us with that. Okay. And then another one is talking to the wrong people. What does that mean? Who? 
Well, I think that this message, Speak Up, is directed at the frontline staff. So we couldn't spend the night counting how many Speak Up initiatives there are and reminders and posters. And we cannot put a number on the dollars that have been spent trying to persuade the people that can't make it safe to speak up. So I think it's the whole message has to be redirected to the people who can make the difference. And that's the people in power. However, I want to point out that the people in power shifts depending on where you are. So um, we can talk later about how speaking in is very dependent on the role you're playing in the situation. Okay. And then, and you may have touched on this, but it works against human nature. What part of human nature specifically are you talking about here? All right, let's not say it works against. Let's just say it's not aligned with. Okay. It's not aligned with our need for psychological safety. It doesn't in any way help us see that we belong. It doesn't, one of the other flaws I put is that it doesn't address the factors driving the silence. So that's where it really doesn't align. So in terms of the natural default to silence that humans will tend to in hierarchies, it doesn't address, wow, we have to overcome power dynamics. It doesn't address that we have to, that people need a sense of purpose. Okay, we're just speaking up to you. Whereas in speaking in, we're going to talk about sharing our, our voice directed to a purpose. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't acknowledge power dynamics at all. There's sort of, there is an assumption behind there that everyone is equally comfortable speaking up in all situations. So you gave five different reasons why speaking in is different or the reasons that it makes sense. And I'd like to go through those too. (laughs) So the first one is that it's big picture. What do you mean by that specifically? It's addressing the totality of not just an organization or the people in it, but also that we're operating on a VUCA world. So I have this model. I call it the wonderful wild world we work in. So picture this. We have at our core, we're all getting out of bed in the morning and stepping on that. These are safety folks, you know, this volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous earth. Then we have this next layer around our core of people, right? Having all these different experiences and emotions. People can't come to work in any other way than as an emotional being, right? That's how we're, how we're built. And then finally, these folks, which I've labeled as fabulous, fallible, and free-willed. And we never know the same doctor that did the life-saving surgery in the morning could be fallible in the afternoon. So picture you've got a VUCA world. Now you have a layer of fabulous, fallible, and free will people. Now these folks go build their um, complex socio-technical systems. And in the end, all of these kind of uh, layers are spinning like a roulette. And sometimes the fabulousness of the person aligned with the VUCA world, like when Captain Sullenberger landed the plane on the Hudson, you have an absolute fabulous outcome. But other times it's just a bad system with a fallible moment, right? And then the weather kicks in and then we have this huge, huge disaster. So the big picture is that in this amount of complexity, power we have thought was, well, power comes from compliance or power comes from control. And we're wondering why we're not getting the results, but foundational to the speaking in strategy is that in complexity, these layers of complexity, power comes from your ability to learn and especially learn in real time. So that's really what I'm hoping to unlock 
with uh, speaking in is the big picture of why organization, both the organizations, they need people contributing and people for their own well-being need to contribute. So it's a win-win on um, on the big picture. Yeah, it reminds me of, I've heard of them called a kind environment is one in which all the rules are understood and kind of static versus a wicked environment where things change all the time. And guess what? We all live in a wicked environment. Absolutely. I really believe that Speak Up is coming from a linear model, okay? A linear command and control model. So we're just speaking up to the people and the preset plans, whereas speaking in is aligned with an emergent, wicked climate scenario. So the second reason is that it directs attention to the people who can make change. Exactly. We know this. I do think that leaders have now realized that, you know what, we have been working on the system for a long time and we have six sigma and leaned and <laughs> we have worked so hard on our systems to everyone's credit, right? But what is missing? What is it going to take to get to that next step? And that next step is about relationships and trust and learning. And so because of power dynamics, because of how easy it is for fear to sneak in, um, and I do want to add this here. So speaking in has a component of addressing the fact that leaders tend towards overconfidence and tend to not listen and think that, well, somehow from my perspective in that nice office, I actually know what's going on, you know, on the ground. And so what we want to do is address the fact that the leaders are the ones who are going to make it safe and easy and also worthwhile to share because one of the things we're overcoming is not just a fear that I might be harmed if I speak. So we have to take that that question. If I speak, will I be helped or harmed? Well, the leader has to remove that question by the choices they make about the culture. So the other question is, if I speak up, will anything ever happen? Well, the leaders are the one controlling the resources to decide, you know what? You won't have to say it 10 times because people won't. They'll say it once or twice, and then they're going to conserve their energy and disengage. So the leader has to say, thank you for the gift. This is a big piece of how speaking in is framed that when someone does share their perspective and speaking in is about intentionally including, inviting, and appreciating diverse perspectives, that when that perspective shared as a gift, what how the leader handles that. So whether the leader seeks it, invites it, and appreciates it, and then how the leader handles that decides whether, is it safe? Is it futile? Right? And um, is my perspective valued? The big work of speaking in, I believe, takes place in a leader's mind. Now, I want to recognize right now that lots of leaders already lead like this, but not enough or we wouldn't <laughs> have such a problem with him. <laughs> but that when a leader can realize more is possible than we can plan for or imagine, and that our plans are people and our information are imperfect, because of the complexity, people are going to be the solution, then they can start realizing, wow, I actually can pick up the keys to start unlocking my greatest resource, which is the knowledge and the energy of people. But right now we know the disengagement is at an all-time high, the energy is low, and lo the data on speaking up is absolutely abysmal. So one of the quotes that actually prompted me into creating speaking in 
came after I had spent quite a bit of time studying, well, seven years studying high reliability organizing and the power of diverse perspectives when you're navigating this unclear or ambiguous situation. And I'm like, and I'm seeing how desperately needed diverse perspectives are. So I go into the nursing literature for speaking up and it says, in this global metasynthesis, speaking up is perceived by nurses as most times unsafe and ineffective. And I thought, how are we ever going to deliver safe and reliable care until we solve this? So when you look at the depth of challenges working in uncertainty. And I made a little, I have to make a model of everything. That's just me. So I make an iceberg of knowledge model where at the top is, you know, what we know. And at the bottom is what we don't know. And that bottom is much bigger. And it includes, I saw after case after case of patient tragedy, things that were unseen, things that were unclear, things that were unstable. Then came the things that went unspoken and things that went unheard. Under that, we had things that were untimely and then unimagined. And I said, you know what, if we can address the unspoken and the unheard, matter of fact, until we do, we're never going to get good at dealing with things that are unclear, with dealing with things that are unimagined, right? Because think about disasters in other industries and how many times these things were happening. Someone saw a weak signal. They're trying to get leadership's attention. I think this is going to be a problem. It's dismissed. We have something very large, blow up, catch on fire, you name it. Or people just, you know, plain old don't share. So over and over and over. So I said, let's tackle these first. How are we going to tackle this? And the crazy thing in the literature is they're now up to 256 factors that determine whether a person speaks or not. And I thought, I think when I looked at it, it was much, much lower, but I still was, I had this moment of existential crisis. We're never going to fix this. But then I said, well, what if we had a model that, that instead of all these inhibiting factors had such a pull on someone that they would speak. So if we remove the fear and then showed you, you know what, you have a unique perspective that nobody else has and it's valuable and we need it. We need you and you matter. And when we can start working from that model, I think we're going to see unbelievable improvements. It occurs to me that it's like changing the onus. So the instead of having the onus on the person who's got all these potential inhibitors to speak up, the onus is on the leadership to, well, make it safe, but also model that they will listen, essentially, right? Because they are the people who can make change, as you said. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And so one of the flaws of speaking in is that it puts all the responsibility for this upward knowledge flow on the people of lesser power. So I do want to talk now about power, how power shifts in a typical day. So it could be that the surgeon walks in and is very, he has a choice. He can be open and there, I know there's surgeons who say, you know, I'm Dr. Day and I'm perfectly fallible and I'm depending on you to help me see where I might be headed towards a mistake. And there are surgeons who walk in and no one would dare. That's a choice. So in that moment in the operating room, the, the surgeon is in the position of power and it's he needs it or she needs to take the responsibility to use the actions that overcome power dynamics. And the re here's the thing. The research is already done. Amy Edmondson 
research from 2006 says that, you know, invitation and appreciation can take nature off its course by overcoming hierarchies, limiting effects. Meanwhile, um, Dr. Morrison did research and also said that when the, the person who could be voicing sees that the target is going to be open to input, also the effects of powerlessness are actually can even be completely removed. So the person in power needs to leverage the research we already have about a direct and specific invitation and an appreciation. So um, that's the thing I love about speaking in is that it springs from your own attitudes, your own assumptions, your attitudes, your questions, and your actions. And if you choose these, no one can stop you. It's a part of, of who you are. You don't need a board meeting. There isn't really a budget per se. I mean, you may want to do some training, but these are things that are available to anybody to absolutely like supercharge their leadership if they choose. Okay. So I'm going to move on to the next three. So that one is it refocuses us on purpose. How does that work? So, okay. Refocusing us on purpose. So instead of speaking up to a person, um, which is a very personal thing, because we're actually saying, oh, you know, gee, Frank, that plan you made, um, I got to tell you, there, there's a problem with it. We're now in the speaking in model, we're standing, people are standing around a pool of complexity. Okay. It's the work to be done. There's some things we know, there's some things we don't know, but we have in the core of this, a purpose we need to achieve. So instead of me speaking up to Frank and telling him I don't like something, I'm just contributing my unique perspective of what it will take for work to go well within our purpose. So it's connecting and it's also illuminating your purpose as that your role is important, that space that you beautifully fill in our organization your perspective from there matters. So it's very much addressing the importance of the frontline view on how work is performed. Yeah, so there's less, maybe less of an emphasis on hierarchy or status and more of an emphasis on the connection, what connects us all, we're all trying to get exactly something done, right? Exactly. Okay, so one of the reasons that speaking in makes sense is that it uses language helpfully. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure, absolutely. I think language is an area where we can really make some great strides when it comes to both safety, employee experience, just organizational life in general. But, well, I realized that the speak up, I'm like, up, are we subconsciously reinforcing the hierarchy that's part of the problem in the first place? Every time we repeat this phrase, it kind of... <laughs> The very fact that we have to go around telling people to do this just shows us we have a silence problem. But secondly, you know, it's a command. It's a uh, very much of a command and control imperative statement. Seems very parent-child and not really that respectful to me. So the question, the language in speaking in is really about a specific a real-time invitation with that, you know, hey, by the way, it would help me to know. So, hey, Mary, you know, I'm really, I'm not so sure what's going on here. Can you share your perspective? It would really help me to know. So now I know, you know, that um, I'm going to actually be helped by your answer. So that's going to remove a lot of 
uncertainty for you right there. Then once you do share, you'll be watching as will everyone else, what I do with that information and that gift from, of knowledge from you. So I say we go to a respectful invitation. And then the last one is that it's fair. So how is speaking in compared to speaking up in, uh, in terms of fairness? Well, leaders are now taking some responsibility for creating that upward flow and setting and creating the conditions where everyone knows that it's always safe and worthwhile to share a question, concern, an idea. So basically what's happened with Speak Up is we're going to tell you to speak up, but we have not been involved necessarily in creating the conditions that you know that it's safe and effective to do so. So speaking in isn't just, there's four parts to it that are very important. And if you leave off any of those parts, you leave yourself at risk that your knowledge flow is going to slow down or eliminate uh, com- itself completely. So actually, you just talked about the four parts. So let's get into those. There's there's four core principles of speaking in. Let's start with intentionally or intentionality, maybe? <laughs> yes, yes, intentionally. The reason we have to approach this intentionally is because even though these challenges are natural and normal in hierarchies, these behaviors are not. So we're going to try to, we have to overcome overconfidence as leaders. We have to overcome, well, we have to acknowledge, intentionally acknowledge that we're working with imperfect plans, imperfect information and imperfect people and anything can happen at any time. We need to, so our overconfidence our risky system and the natural power dynamics. And we have to be in, intentionally remind ourselves, you know what? Others can see what I can't. When we really take those in, then we can say, all right, I'm going to make space for diverse perspectives. So that very first place that a leader needs to make space for diverse perspectives is in their own mind by being in saying, you know what? Other people can see what I can't. And the system has all kinds of flaws in it, Right. And darn it, I tend to be a little overconfident. I've got to get intentional for this. So then get intentional in your head. Then you can start getting intentional in your meeting space. How much time did you leave for other folks to share? Then you can get intentional with the types of questions. And finally, you can intentionally build this into your actual structures and your system, constantly seeking diverse perspectives. So that's the intentional part. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and I would think, think about your language intentionally too, which is something you were just talking about. So the second kind of practice in speaking in is including. Yep. So I think of the including as when you're making operational decisions, or it could be planning, you call that operational, but, you know, asking yourself, are the people with the insight, I love the ins, So they just all came together. Are the people (laughs) insight, right? Are they even included in the meeting? Are they even included in the discussion? So looking forward, who will we need to include in the moment? Who do we need to include right now? And looking backwards, did we include everyone that we should have as we made this decision in complexity and uncertainty? So the including means literally having that perspective present, but I do separate it from the invitation, which you're going to probably ask me next. (laughs) Yes. So inviting and appreciating. Although I just actually, I want to stop and say for including, you mean including the perspective. It doesn't mean that every single person comes to every single meeting. I'm sure it's more conceptual than that, where 
different people have opportunities to be included. Yeah, especially I say including the people who'll be impacted. Um, how many times? So it works two ways. One, it when you don't include the the people who will be impacted, you're a really kind of letting them know that you don't think you need their perspective, right? And two, you're really actually missing out on the the expertise which is there at the front line. So that's the including is really thinking about who needs to be included at those during your particular activity. Okay, so the next one, yes, is inviting and appreciating. So how does that play out? Okay, so the inviting, yes, based on on the research. Inviting, like I said, is that now, just because the person's in the room or on the Zoom, right? Uh, That right, in the room or on the Zoom does not mean they're (laughs) going to speak. How many meetings have we been at? Okay, yes, I've been included, I'm on, I'm there. But the invitation has to be made in real time by the person of power signaling it's going to be safe if you share and then appreciating. So appreciating means verbally and non-verbally, right, which is much more powerful, showing that you are appreciative or thankful for that knowledge, even if you don't like the answer you got, because it is the window into the reality of what's happening in your business. So that gift to be able to see work through someone else's eyes is a gift and it needs to be received as such. It's how you're going to find your problems, right? It's the expertise of how to solve your problems. But if you receive it gracefully and you are thankful, so there's the invitation, the appreciation, but the appreciation needs to include that follow through. So I talk about this question for deep soul searching, individual and organizational, is how do you handle the gift of knowledge once you've received it? And for this, I like to use Dr. Ron Westrom's, um, he has a, a flow of options, okay, of what you can do with the gift of knowledge. And it starts with suppression. So I, I make little graphic pictures of everyone, everything. And in this one, we're, we're sweeping that little present under the rug, Next, we might like encapsulate it and we, we put it in a little file. And we hope no one ever peeks in that drawer. Next, very, very destructive is the PR job. So someone's handed you a present. It's clearly blue. Everyone in the room knows it was blue. But when we go out to the uh, company newsletter, we say it's red. So handling the gift of knowledge in that way just is a great way to erode trust with your staff. And I would highly suggest not to do that. Then there's levels of inquiry from, you know, a local inquiry to a global inquiry on how we can really say, wow, this, we didn't like it or we did like it, but let's really respect it and look at it deeply. Now, people will always say, we can't address all the issues. No, but people are smart and they know when you truly have considered it and some follow-up or, you know what, I did talk to the big boss about this and we can't fit this in this year, but we're going to revisit that. That's what people want to know. So that's the four steps of um, speaking in. And the thing that, two things about that taking care of the gift of knowledge. One, everybody's watching how you handle it. It's not just your interaction, unless you're, compl- you know, even if you were alone, people are going to hear about it. I told them, I told them the truth. And guess what? Nothing's been done. So that's one, one thing. But two, when they see that you actually are taking care of the gift, well, aren't people gonna be more willing to share what they know? So everybody's watching how the leader handles the gift. And it's hard, the whole process 
calls for vulnerability on the part of the leader. So we've kind of been demanding a vulnerability from the front line. You know, you're going to speak up about your mistakes, but really it's the leaders are now inviting and welcoming information about maybe places where they've, they've fallen down. So, you know, I have some attitudes that I say support are actually essential for uh, speaking in. And the first one is courage. And I say that because it's going to take courage on the part of leaders to one, admit, okay, this strategy has is not working. And two, I'm going to have to take responsibility because it's just the nature of things. It's just the nature of people. It's the nature of complex systems. And I'm going to have to make some shifts in, in my attitudes, in my actions, in my, and sometimes, so I, there's a quote by Franklin Roosevelt and it says, sometimes it takes courage to stand up and speak, but sometimes it takes courage to sit down and listen. And I think that's the type of courage that we're going to need to get to the next level of, of healing our, our organizations. Yeah, agreed. It's, uh, and it's new. It's certainly not traditional. It's not what has been expected. So it's a big shift. These are, again, the core practices of speaking in. So the last one is diverse perspectives, which is sort of is an outcome of the practice. Well, okay. Yes. The diverse perspectives, what we're after is unlocking the power of diverse perspectives. So it's like all of those things are necessary to get, it is kind of the end goal, okay, is that we have now unlocked the power to do good for the person, to do good for the organization. And what we know is that, and this goes back to higher liability organizing, that collective intelligence and collective mindfulness are very, very, very powerful. And the leaps and bounds that an organization could improve by when they removed the fear and feelings of fear, futility, and powerlessness. Those are the three things we're after um, with speaking in. The power there is incredible. Nobody teaches you this in so many organizations. I look at healthcare leaders. Look, we're crunching numbers. It's this attending to the power and potential of people in organizations is just starting. It must be just starting because we're in it. You know, if you look at the Surgeon General, well, you're in Canada and you guys care up there, I know as well. But in October of 2020, our Surgeon General issued a national call to action on well-being and mental health in the workplace. And it has five essential, it's easy to find, five essentials that workers need, you know, mattering and community, but it's centered on worker voice and equity. And it tells us how to do the five bubbles, but it doesn't tell us how to unlock voice. And I'm going to tell you that unlocking voice has been a tough nut to crack. So this is where I'm really hoping that speaking in can help. So I'm going to do a little bit of a pushback. I think some people might see this as it might say, this is just a rebrand of psychological safety. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I would say it's the vehicle to psychological safety. I think they're one of the things I've seen, you know, we're all talking about it, but how do we do it? So speaking in is very specific. Do this, practice this, you know, just reflect, where did I fall down? We're going to, it's a very much a tiny baby step. Try it out. You're not going to get it right. You're going to forget to ask. You're going to be busy and your appreciation will be half-hearted, but People are also forgiving. And when they see you go back, say, you know what? I did not appreciate that incredible perspective you shared yesterday. And I just want to tell you today. So is it a rebrand? 
know what I like to think of speaking in as a framework for all the great work around this topic that's already been done, but we're still trying to do it under a speak up model. And there's a misalignment there, but okay. Inclusive leadership, it's very much inclined with, you know, the principles of inclusive leadership, the whole idea that we need to belong at work, the idea that, you know, the frontline, that's where your expertise. So basically, a lot of this work had been done. I really put a framework and the language to it. And I just want to appreciate all the work that everyone else did. This is just a piece of the puzzle, especially in our of healing organizations and especially bringing in a new communication strategy. And there's another one that I just know from when you and I spoke earlier about terminology. You said that some people have come up to you and said they don't like the term speaking in. So can you share your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. Well, really, one person said you can't use the word in. And I thought, why? I mean, (laughs) why? You know, we've made up all these rules, a lot of the rules. There's the nature parts of ourselves, you know, that we can't change and the natures of systems. But a lot of these rules we've made up and then we've just stuck with them. We also have seen, though, how such sometimes a small, well, this isn't a small shift. The word is small, okay? But we have seen things flip with, you know, Airbnbs. That's impossible. It's happened. Uber, it's happened. I'm hoping that speaking in, I believe, here's what I truly believe. I believe that I started from safety performance. Let's. I came up through the blood and guts and I read 353 cases of harm and it was so depressing. And I said, we're going to fix patient safety. But then I realized, oh, well, we have to then fix how we think about our work. And, and then I realized, oh, we have to fix, can we speak? Then I realized we have to fix the leaders. The only reason that I came up with this framework is I was gifted a whole lot of time to think about it. And there's been many 3 a.m.s where I'm like, what are we going to do differently? But what I believe is that healing the employee experience is actually one of the fastest and most effective ways to heal the world. And I believe that because with every decision we make in an organization, we can decide, are we bringing more truth and freedom and justice into organization. And we have the chance to expose people to these things that never experienced them. They didn't experience truth in their family. Maybe they didn't experience justice in their country. But we have large corporations now that without a commentary on the whole political and economic, we still have the power to create an experience where someone leaves at the end of the day knowing what the good things are and not totally depleted. Because for me, especially with healthcare, I think what condition are we sending these parents home in to parent? And what is the cost for the next generation because of what has happened at work to these parents? That's the pie in the sky optimistic piece, but I really believe it. Well, I mean, we spend so much time at work and yeah, how things that happen at work do affect things that happen at home, right? And things that happen at home affect families and that affects children and that affects mindsets as they grow up. And yeah, I can see the connections for sure. So I like to ask about practical steps. So let's say that we, our listeners are, are here thinking, okay, I get it. These are great ideas. How would you suggest someone starts maybe learning about this or putting some of the 
practices in practice at work? Excuse me. That is a great question. So first thing, you could uh, go to my website, um, but I would expect speaking in .podia.com has lots of things that you can download about the whole topic. But first, I mean, it really is, there's a couple steps someone might need to take. And I actually was really wrestling with this question today. If you have an idea, like I do, that can change the world, but you're also sort of a business person, like how do you handle this ethically? And part of me, I really am wondering if I should, you know, what I try to do is put enough out there that you can get started. It's free to the world. If you need support, because you know what? I don't understand why I need diverse perspectives or I don't believe just diverse perspectives, then that's where I can support either an individual or an organization. But to get started, there's three questions that I would suggest. So we were actually going over these before and then I think we moved away. One is that simple question of, hey, is there anything else that you think I might need to know? It'd really help me if you shared that. That's a very, you know, superficial information-based question. The second question is you can start asking those around you. So on this issue, I'd really appreciate it if you would share your questions, concerns, or ideas. What are you guys thinking? Okay, so now we're tapping inside of a person and asking them what's going on in their mind. This isn't outside information. This is how they're processing. And the third question, which is borrowed from clean language, which is an amazing um, strategy of where you really try not to impose your mental model on someone else, is the question, you know, it really helped me to know, what would you like to have happen? Now you're allowing that person to actually share a vision of how they think things should be moving forward. And this is a, a really easy way to tap what we would call the latent expertise in the room, but maybe someone who's going to say they're going to stay silent unless you absolutely ask them and told them that sharing is going to be helpful. So there's so many questions that can be designed around context, but those are three to just get started and penciling into your meeting. I'm going to ask and I'm going to really appreciate and then I'm going to follow up. Even before that, let's say you're like, I'm not so sure about this speaking in thing. Take some time to be mindful and really watch the dynamics in the room. How are people reacting when someone shares their perspective? How many times are people actually asked to share their perspectives? And, and how much room for growth is there within those dynamics? Yeah, another thing you can notice too in meetings is who speaks and who doesn't. Like if you could have a pie chart of who gets to speak, there's always a few who don't and there's always a few who take more than their share of pie, as it were. Yeah. And, you know, someone asked me, a really brought up a great point about that. And she said, you know, Lauren, she's like, I love speaking in. She goes, but I got to tell you, I hate to speak in a meeting. She goes, what do you think about the idea that people can actually write, write it down and that the leader can say, you know, if you're more comfortable. And I said, that's brilliant. You know, you could also extend and say, you know what, if something comes to you after this meeting that you want to share, shoot me an email. Oh, well, whoa. Okay. Cause I really couldn't, I couldn't make myself say it in front of, of Sue, but if I'm just sharing it with the leader, I can do that. So I think we have lots of room to be creative about how to make it easier for people to share their perspectives. Great. Well, okay. So I have a few questions that I always ask my guests at the end. If you had to choose only one, 
I know this is a really hard one. What is the most important non-technical skill for tomorrow's safety professionals? So here I'm talking human skills as opposed to the technical skills that, that safety people need. Asking good questions from a position of caring. Fantastic. Do you think that can be taught? I think it can. Absolutely. I have a friend who is a genius at it, and I've had the honor of watching what that has done in her company and absolutely transformed the culture. Okay. And another one, if you could go back in time to the beginning of your kind of safety research portion of your career, is there a piece of advice that you would give to your younger self? Ooh, yeah, I would definitely stop overthinking everything. You know, definitely spend a lot of time overthinking. Underneath that is just be comfortable being imperfectly going forward with help. Because I'm like, oh, but this could be better and that could be better. Then you hold it back. Meanwhile, anything we're going to produce is imperfect, right? So the better idea is to go out with your imperfect idea, which I have an imperfect baby idea, and realize it's going to take other people and other perspectives to mature it, to make it better, be open to that. Sometimes I beat myself up and I'm like, you're too slow. (laughs) It's fear. You know what I'm doing is, this is the funny thing. I'm actually speaking up to the bigger world and I'm saying, hey, everybody, right? That speak up thing, it's not working. So in a sense, although beautifully, there's times like you, people invite. (laughs) And I was invited to be on this podcast and share my baby speaking in strategy. So, <laughs> well, I think it's really interesting. I think you've pulled together a lot of different threads that I hear from different guests and created sort of a workable framework. How can our listeners learn more about the topics in our discussion today? So, we can talk about your website. Are there also any books or maybe any researchers or ideas that you think are, are worth looking into? Sure. Well, I mean, I always suggest, you know, The Fearless Organization by Amy Edmondson. I mean, a great work. For me, the book that influenced me the most is actually Managing the Unexpected. 2001 is the yellow version. And that book changed my life. And I think a topic to study and Deborah Acona, Dr. Deborah Acona from MIT, You, if you Google sensemaking, Um, MIT teaches that sense-making is the number one leadership skill. And I should have said this sooner. So let me just add this, that speaking in is very much founded upon our intense need for effective sense-making in organizations, meaning just making sense of what is happening in front of us. What are our eyes and our ears and our information? You know, they're sending us signals that something's happening. And we will only be as successful as our ability to make sense of what is happening is. So when I did look at all of those failures, I said, oh, they made fine decisions for what they thought was happening, but they had mistook their world, right? So I see speaking in as a really strong lever in the improving sense-making in an organization. So I would say studying sense-making, high reliability organizing, of course, anything on psychological safety, and uh, follow me on uh, Speaking In has a page and I have a profile where I share ideas. We're creating um, three courses to help people. One is the learning leader. So that's going to be the overview of 
the reflection and the at what are the attitudes I need to embrace, the questions. We're working on something called the Curious Coach. And this is about unlocking perspectives around you when you're that kind of uh, coaching. You Anywhere in middle, I hate the word management, all those, you know, leadership. And then we're finally going to, we're also going to work on something called the Fabulous Frontline because what I want the frontline to understand is that even when you're new, sometimes because you're new, your perspective is so valuable. You need the fresh eyes, especially with nurses. So like I am going to working on a little project with nurses. And I think, you know, I want that sometimes, even though you're the new nurse, if you were the only person that saw that patient the day before, then you're the only person who has a perspective on a particular shift in the patient. So um, those are going to be becoming available. Those would be the main things I would say. Just to clarify, the profile and the page, those are, are those on LinkedIn or? Yes. So speaking in has this. Yes. Okay. And then me, Lauren Mooney. Mm-hmm. We'll have this stuff linked in the show notes as well for listeners. Well, we're at time today. Thanks, Lauren, for joining me and, and chatting about speaking in. Thank you for having me. It was an absolute uh, honor and pleasure. As always, thank you to our listeners. We hope that every episode is interesting and more importantly, that it's helpful to your safety practice. My thanks to the Safety Labs by Slice team who make it all happen. Bye for now. Safety Labs is created by Slice, the only safety knife on the market with a finger-friendly blade. Find us at sliceproducts.com. Until next time, stay safe.